Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today with us with their analysis, political scientists, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College. Hi, Megan. Hi, Ben. Jonathan Hasid is with us as well of Iowa State University. Hello there, Jonathan. Hi, Ben. Jonathan is Associate Professor of Political Science uh, at ISU. Megan, Assistant Professor of American Politics at Cornell College. Um, and uh, we invite you to join our conversation, one 780 or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. A little later in the program, of course, we'll focus on uh, some new aspects of the caucus, a new poll saying Donald Trump expanding his lead. Um, We are about a month away from caucus day. Also, the impasse over congressional aid for Ukraine, Israel, and border security. Uh, That campus anti-Semitism controversy um, uh, abortion uh, being taken up by the Supreme, uh, 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 rather a court ruling in Texas on abortion. We'll talk about the U.S. Supreme Court taking up a couple of cases uh, that have to do with uh, the January 6th uh, insurrection. So plenty to come. We'll see how much we fit in. Let's tackle at the top of this what we heard in our NPR news here, brief comments on on these. Um, we have uh, nearly 200 countries making a historic deal at the Global Climate Summit in Dubai. Um, uh, Weeks after contentious talks, uh, it calls on countries to start transitioning away from fossil fuels. And in nearly 30 years of this annual summit, this is COP28, uh, a deal has never before specifically called for curbing the use of fossil fuels. Of course, the biggest contributors to our planet's warming. Uh, Let me toss this to you, Jonathan, uh, to put it in the realm of politics. How will the outcome of this coming 2024 election shape our approach to tackling climate change? Because we've had now two administrations with very different approaches. Sure, it'll it'll be hugely consequential uh, who's president. Uh, That said, I don't think this particular... Uh, you know, climate change goal, however laudable to, to phase out fossil fuels. Uh, I mean, it's important to note that it doesn't come with any regulatory or enforcement mechanism, right? So it's mm-hmm. up to countries themselves um, to do that. And, you know, uh, a lot of countries are continuing to. So this is, you know, hosted in the United Arab Emirates in Dubai, which is, of course, a, a major, um, you know, petro, uh, hydro, petrocarbon uh, producer. And, um uh, they're opening, <laughs> you know, new plants and stuff. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, I don't know. Yes. The American president will matter a great deal. The U S is the world's second largest carbon emitter. Uh, and so in that sense, U S federal policy can matter a great deal in pushing, uh, the world one way or another, but it's important to recognize the limits of this particular, uh, you know, resolution. Right. Uh, to you, uh, Megan, with um, the House vote on impeachment, the impeachment inquiry against uh, President Biden, um, Republicans wanting to strengthen their powers to investigate Biden's family finances. Uh, today's vote could formally authorize an inquiry 
uh, to begin in September. Um, What they're investigating, whether the president financially benefited from his son Hunter's foreign investment deals. It's important to note Republicans have so far failed to prove their claims. Since they haven't proven any claims thus far, Megan, what's what's this vote about? I mean, I think this is a really interesting um, I mean, and somewhat unsurprising, I guess. We've, we've been talking, I think, for years at this point about accusations of weaponizing um, the Department of Justice. And I think this is uh, a fair example of that and the power to do federal uh, investigations. Uh, and I think that it's really, and I feel like I've probably talked about this on, on this show before, um, but an attempt to, as, as President, uh, former President Trump faces all of these other legal problems, um, to sort of, you know, turn our attention in the other direction or at the very least be able to point the finger in the other direction to sort of say, like, well, the other party has problems, too, um, problems with corruption or problems with, um, you know, private gain from public office, because there's lots of evidence that um, President Trump, or at the very least, his family potentially benefited um, and had private benefit from Trump's uh, public office. Um, and so sort of trying to say, like, well... This is sort of like an existing problem everywhere. It turns our attention away from any problems with Trump. On the other hand, it doesn't seem like uh, any of Trump's legal problems are affecting his electoral chances, at least at the moment when we're talking about the Republican nomination process. Um, but I think that the, the Hunter Biden um, issues is like the issue that won't die. I mean, I think I, we've been hearing about it at this point for years um, because it is a convenient Sort of way to divert attention from Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, let's turn our uh, gaze afield to uh, the Mideast uh, and that conflict. In his most critical remarks so far, uh, President Biden uh, telling Israelis leaders they are losing international support for their war in Gaza. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu rejecting out of hand uh, an American vision for a post-war resolution to the conflict that would put the Palestinian Authority in charge of the territory, uh, Gaza. Um, And uh, we had a U.N. vote yesterday uh, demanding an immediate ceasefire uh, in the uh, Israel-Hamas war. It was an overwhelming vote, about three-quarters of the body's members voting in favor of the non-binding resolution, so isolating uh, the United States to some degree. And, of course, we have to mention the background here. More than 15,000 people, many of them Women and children have been killed in Gaza, according to local health officials, since Israel declared war on Hamas after the militant group launched a terrorist attack back on October 7th, killing more than 1,200 people and taking 240 others hostage, many of those hostages uh, remaining um, in the hands of Hamas. Uh, Let's listen to what the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, said um, at the U.N. before this vote, acknowledging that the humanitarian situation in Gaza is dire, but that it was Hamas that broke an earlier deal that allowed for a pause in fighting. Temporary at the best and dangerous at worst. Dangerous to Israelis who would be subject to relentless attacks and also dangerous to Palestinians who deserve the chance to build a better future for themselves free from Hamas. 
Jonathan, how do you see President Biden's critical statements towards Israeli leaders uh, in the past few days and this overwhelming, uh, we have to say, though, non-binding vote at the U.N.? Yeah, I mean, Biden has to walk a domestic and international tightrope all at the same time. Domestically, he's gotten a lot of criticism from um, Muslim leaders uh, around the country, uh, particularly in Michigan, which has a large Muslim population and, of course, is potentially a an important presidential swing state. Um, and so Biden certainly doesn't want to lose those supporters. He also, of course, um, you know, American Jews tend to be pretty liberal and tend to be overwhelmingly dem- Democratic voters located on the coasts, right? And he has, he has to not you know, upset those uh, uh, sort of stalwart Democratic supporters too much. And so that's that's just on the domestic side. On the international side, of course, there's a lot to balance with Russia, Israel, Palestine, China, and lots of other actors. So um, Biden, you know, is just acting very cautiously. But I do think it was clever of him to target Netanyahu uh, because Netanyahu is overwhelmingly unpopular in Israel. If you look at public opinion polls of, of Israelis, they overwhelmingly, when the war is over, want him gone. Um, uh, in part, his failings are seen as contributing massively to the start of the war. And so um, Israel, and Israel is in this interesting position where the leader Netanyahu benefits politically from having the war go on, since it's hard to remove him while it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. And so his incentives for ending the war are potentially not the same as that of most of Israelis or you know President Biden. And so in that sense... If uh, the administration can work to separate Netanyahu from Israel, or even the Israeli government, um, that may be good politics uh, for for Biden. Yeah. Uh, Megan, we want to talk about the anti-Semitism co- controversy here on campuses in just a moment. But um, on our domestic front with this issue, Megan, how do you evaluate what's been happening to support for Israel's war in Gaza in this country? Yeah, I mean, I think it is definitely... Uh, has marked a large shift uh, in sort of the popular support for Israel. And, and to be fair, like the, if you look at polls from the mass public, um, it, it's shifting a little bit. There's still overwhelmingly a lot of support for Israel. So I don't want to say that like the tides have shifted. Um, but I think in some ways, um, you know, support of um, Palestine was really sort of verboten um, in a lot of spaces. And we've clearly seen um, that people are much more open about that now, that they're willing to publicly um, stand in support of Palestine. And so I think that does mark a major shift, um, that we have seen mass protests. Um, I also think it's sort of a, a good example of, and, and I'm not saying that sort of um, the folks who have been putting pressure on Democrats and the Biden administration are happy with the policy changes, but you are starting to see some shifting rhetoric um, like we just saw from Biden. I think it's proof that, um, you know, the the Democratic Party can be sort of like dynamically responsive, that if you put pressure on them from sort of the right places, you can get them to move policy in the way that the public wants, or at least that they're sort of their supporters want. Um, and at the end of the day, that's like good news for democracy, that if the public is shifting, um, that the government is responsive to, to that uh, movement. 
Jonathan, we have about a minute before we go to break, but uh, back over to the Middle East situation. I know you're a China expert, so perhaps this is uh, out of your wheelhouse, but you are, are so uh, versed in, in a lot of international affairs in the Middle East. Where do you see this headed? What outcomes, what scenarios um, are possible at this point? I don't I don't know. You know, I think domestic politics in Israel, which was already really, really ugly before the war, um, is, is just going to get really, really vicious. And it's important to remember that Israel doesn't have a written constitution and relies in large part on convention and tradition in the functioning of its parliamentary democracy. And so, you know, Israel has the real potential of, of you know, disintegrating uh, in, in odd ways or becoming more authoritarian or something. And so that's, so that's something that I think the U.S. needs to watch really, really carefully to the extent that we have any influence. Jonathan Hasid with us of Iowa State University, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College, our two political scientists on board this Politics Wednesday edition of our program. When we come back, we'll talk about controversy over last week's congressional hearing regarding anti-Semitism on college campuses. Uh, The aftermath of that continues. It's Politics Wednesday. I'm Ben Kiefer, back with more River to River in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. We are back midstream in this edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Megan Goldberg and Jonathan Asid are two political scientists with us this uh, hour as we pick through half a dozen or so um, political uh, developments uh, nationally and here in Iowa. Of course, a little later in the program, we'll talk about uh, the countdown to the Republican caucuses. Also, the Democrats uh, meet on January 15th, but their annou- uh, results will not be announced until back in March. And of course, uh, we have an incumbent Democratic president um, seeking the nomination uh, there. So it's really the eyes are on the Republican side. Talk about that a little bit later. Let's talk about this controversy over last week's congressional hearing regarding anti-Semitism on college campuses. It continues to play out at Harvard, MIT, University of Pennsylvania. Over the weekend, the UPenn president, Liz McGill, McGill, uh, resigned after calls mounted for her to uh, removal among students, faculty, and donors. Uh, Yesterday, Harvard announced that its president, Claudine Gay, will keep her job amid this intense pressure. Critics say McGill, Gay, and the MIT president, Sally Kornbluth, failed to convince Congress uh, and the public that they can adequately protect their Jewish students. Uh, Those concerns largely erupting after the university presidents were asked on Capitol Hill whether uh, calling for the genocide of Jews would violate their school's code of conduct. Uh, I'm sure you've seen this or heard this, but let's uh, let's uh, center in on, on some of the, the audio here from last week, uh, centering on a heated line of questioning last week from Representative Elise Stefanik of New York. Well, let me ask you this. Will admissions offers be rescinded or any disciplinary action be taken against students or applicants who say, from the river to the sea or intifada, advocating for the murder of Jews? 
as I've said, that type of hateful, reckless, offensive speech is personally abhorrent to me. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. The voices of Gay and then followed by McGill being questioned by Representative Stefanik of New York, Republican. Uh, Megan, uh, your thoughts first. Uh, on these controversies, um, on these campuses specifically, but, um, you know, these type of um, um, tensions are, are on all of our campuses, I believe, across the country here in Iowa as well. Yeah, I mean, so I don't think it's unique to these uh, particular campuses. I should probably say also, I went to MIT. Um, oh. And I also think, you know, there is certainly a rise in these incidents recently. But even at the time, you know, that I was a graduate student at MIT, there were also anti-Semitic uh, events or anti-Semitic, um, you know, graffiti and things like that on campus. Um, and so I don't think this is like, <laughs> this isn't the newest phenomenon in the world. Um, but that also, you know, the, the, um, these campuses have been dealing with this type of speech for a long time. Um, and so even with the rise of these incidents, which has certainly been documented, um, that I think it's, uh, important to consider sort of like what was the Republican motivation for bringing in uh, these university presidents, these three particular presidents, um, and thinking about sort of like what the hearings were for, because I think that's a sort of thing I talk about in my classes on Congress over and over again, is that hearings, especially televised ones, um, well, now that they're mostly all televised and you can watch them and listen to them, have really become an opportunity for members of Congress not to necessarily like actually learn real information, but to sort of have these, it's to almost like create content, to have these sort of like viral clips that they can show um, and that we see pass around and around again. Um, and it seems clear to me, at least, that this particular hearing, sort of the aftermath of it, was potentially as college presidents not really anticipating that dynamic mm -hmm. um, and not really being prepared from a communication standpoint to communicate the ways in which campuses are a place um, where students do engage in free expression and often engage in protected speech that is deeply, deeply unpopular. Um, and that's not to say campuses draw lines all the time and those lines are going to be different at different campuses, um, but sometimes it will involve certain types of protected speech that are deeply, deeply unpopular. Mm -hmm. And we, we should mention here that Elise Stefanik, um, the representative from New York, we heard in that clip uh, at the forefront, um, at the center of this um, testimony uh, questioning these university presidents, is an ardent, one of the most ardent supporters of former President Trump. Jonathan, your, your reaction? You know, I think it's a... Um a nice sort of red herring. It, you know, it seems to me that uh, yes, like the uh, you know everything Megan said is 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 uh, well said, and and I think I agree with that. That you know the presidents came with these. I mean, they they should have done better than parsing these lawyerly answers. Um, but at the same time, the whole hearing was conducted in bad faith. Uh, you know, there's there's plenty of scary things that are happening in higher education 
the state of Florida has dismantled New College and is, um, you know, de- seems seems delighted to be sending faculty packing. Um, you know, other states, of course, including Iowa, have passed uh, speech restrictions on universities. And so this is, um, you know, issues like this are a convenient way for and a cynical way for um, members of the right, like Elise Stefanik, to point to problems at the universities uh, from the left as a way of distracting from the much more serious structural problems coming from the right. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College. Uh, Let's uh, move on to Ukraine. So much happening in our news that connects uh, the U.S. foreign policy um, uh, here. Uh, uh, Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky in Washington yesterday uh, to make an in-person plea for the military and economic aid he has said is necessary to continue Ukraine's defense against Russia's invasion. He is visiting Washington, uh, did visit Washington for the third time since the war began, February of 2022, meeting with members of Congress yesterday morning, and then President Biden later in the afternoon. Noon, um, and also we should mention his meetings came on the same day that we had this U.S. declassified intelligence intelligence on Russia's losses so far this war, Um, the intelligence showing that uh, U.S. officials believe the military in Russia has continued to suffer heavy losses, uh, but also determined to continue to push forward. Uh, And it also comes, uh, this visit, of course, Zelensky's visit, hinging on this supplemental funding package that includes crucial aid for Ukraine, um, it's uh, logjammed by congressional Republicans. They want the Biden administration to make concessions on border security and immigration policy in exchange for the aid package. Before we have comment from Jonathan and Megan, let's hear a, a few voices. Uh, let's listen to uh, Vladimir Zelensky uh, in Washington uh, yesterday. Together, Ukraine and America can strengthen democracy's arsenal. And this is vital for other free nations and the U.S. as it involves your companies, technologies, and technology advancement and job creation. And it is important to know that two-thirds of American support for Ukraine remains and works in the United States. Third, I inform Mr. President that Ukraine has fulfilled all the recommendations of the European Commission regarding the preparation for a decision to start negotiations on Ukraine's accession to the uh, EU. And we constantly communicate with European leaders about our joint steps, sanctions, and political efforts to pressure Russia. American leadership is crucial, is keeping this unity together, a unity that serves the entire free world. And I thank America for new sanctions, and today we discussed Putin's further isolation and making him pay for his aggression. It's very important that by the end of this year, we can send very strong signal of our unity to the aggressor and the unity of Ukraine, America, Europe, the entire free world. Ukrainian President Zelensky yesterday in Washington. President Biden asking Congress for more than 60 billion dollars in aid for Ukraine. So far, it's been rebuffed. Uh, Republican support has waned. Uh, We've been uh, talking about that uh, for weeks now on uh, River to River. Um, And they're tying support for additional funding to changes in border security. Let's uh, listen to President Biden. 
we also need congress to make the changes to fix the broken immigration system here at home my team is working with senate democrats and republicans to try to find a bipartisan compromise both in terms of changes in policy and provide the resources we need to secure the border compromise is how democracy works and i'm ready and offered compromise already holding ukraine funding hostage in the attempt to force through an extreme republican partisan agenda on the border is not how it works we need real solutions republican house speaker mike johnson spoke to reporters about aid to current ukraine after meeting with zelensky just had a good meeting with president zelensky i reiterated to him that we stand with him and against putin's brutal invasion uh, the American people stand for freedom, and they're on the right side of this fight. I have asked the White House since the day that I was handed the gavel as Speaker for clarity. We need a clear articulation of the strategy to allow Ukraine to win. And thus far, their responses have been insufficient. They have not provided us the clarity and the detail that we requested over and over since literally 24 hours after I was handed the gavel as Speaker of the House. And so what the Biden administration seems to be asking for is billions of additional dollars with no appropriate oversight, no clear strategy to win, and and none of the answers that I think the American people are owed. I have also made very clear from day one that our first condition on any national security supplemental spending package is about our own national security first. The border is an absolute catastrophe. And this is because of the policies of this White House and this administration. Speaker Mike Johnson on Ukrainian aid there before that, President Biden and Ukrainian President Zelensky. Megan, start us off. Help us understand the impasse over or the funding here. Yes, I I think you mentioned that we've been talking about this for weeks. and I know I certainly have talked about this before. Yes, yes. But we've seen this rise in opposition to aid to Ukraine, particularly in the Republican Party. Some of that based in some, especially on the far right, um, some sympathy for Russia and Putin and his regime, um, and almost some sort of admiration for the way in which Putin uh, governs um, and sort of the the more authoritarian impulses of Russia. Um, And we have seen a backlash against Ukraine, which um, is not always that surprising, given that it was sort of this huge influx of support. We often see sort of like a thermostatic response Um, where then there's backlash against something that's really popular. Um, But on the other hand, it's a really useful uh, bargaining chip for Republicans because they know that Democrats have sort of put their weight uh, behind support of Ukraine. And so it's a way, um, you know, where Republicans are have been having trouble sort of uh, extracting compromises from Democrats. It's a place where they could potentially do that. Um, And so they can ask uh, Democrats for things that they want uh, in exchange for supporting Ukraine. Um, and it's not an issue since it's foreign policy. Most Americans, especially, you know, at this point, how long has it been since Ukraine was sort of like in the, the public conversation in such a uh, in-depth way? Most people don't know what's going on in Ukraine or t- like really care that much. Um, that's sort of like speaking about the mass public. And so if you have to vote with Democrats on something, like foreign policy is sort of a low-hanging fruit where you're not going to get electorally punished for it. And if in exchange you can get something that you really wanted, um, that's really beneficial. The problem is Democrats aren't necessarily ready 
to negotiate on some of those policies yet. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, let me t- toss you a question from one of our, our listeners um, due to your um, uh, China expertise here. Uh, this is from Dave in Cedar Rapids. He writes, U.S. funding the war in Ukraine depletes weapons stores, drives Putin closer to Xi Jinping, giving China more natural gas from Russia, making more likely more countries will move away from the dollar as the world's cr- Reserve currency. Dave in Cedar Rapids asks, "What is the end game? What is the objective?" Um, I, I disagree with most of Dave's premises. Uh, first of all, I think that um, it's a, a fantastic investment. You know, the U.S. has has degraded by by estimates, right, as much as ninety percent of Russia's army, a pre-war army, um, for. Of course, the cost of Ukrainian lives has been absolutely horrendous. Um, but, you know, for, by American dollar standards, it's been quite cheap. Uh, and Putin and Xi Jinping were, were already, had already declared a no-limits partnership weeks before the war started. So the, the, the logic that that has driven China and Russia together is also a bit silly. Um, as for the end game, I think the end game ultimately has to be for, you know, the Ukrainian people and, uh, to some extent, uh, the Russian military to decide. Um, of course, the U.S. has influence, uh, and, and uh, you know we have weapons deliveries, which have been really cost-effective for what we've gotten. But ultimately, it's we're we're not fighting the war, right? U- Ukraine mm-hmm. is fighting the war, and so the war will continue for them uh, as long as uh, the public wants it. Right, but heavily Ukraine heavily dependent on Western support, financial, military, um, certainly wavering here in the U.S. Jonathan, your outlook, and, and in the EU, I understand with Hungary there as, as well. Perhaps not on board with uh, that. What do you see as the outlook for Western support uh, as uh, this war will soon enter its third year in February? Uh, well, frankly, uh, it all depends on who wins the U.S. presidential election. I think a lot of Europe has stepped back a bit, take, sort of taken a pause for various reasons. As you say, Viktor Orban in Hungary is, is quite um, Putin-centric. Uh, the new leadership in Slovakia that was recently elected is also uh, sort of Russia-leaning. Um, and, 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 of course, the European Union needs uh, unanimity to do anything. And so Orban, Hungary and Slovakia by themselves can block most weapons uh, deliveries. Um, but I think everyone's just waiting to see, you know, if Donald Trump gets elected. I think Trump has signaled and Europe understands and certainly Russia and Ukraine understand uh, that if Donald Trump wins next year, that he will stop weapons deliveries to Ukraine. He will pressure Ukraine to uh, end the war and uh, essentially hand Putin uh, a victory. Mm-hmm. And so I think ultimately that's that's what we have to wait for. What about the Democratic uh, talking point that if uh, Putin uh, wins in this case or uh, keeps the part of Ukraine that he, they are currently occupying, that he will be emboldened and and that that will be uh, it will be a NATO country, a full NATO country uh, next uh, in his crosshairs? That seems to me unlikely, given the state of the Russian economy and military, right? Like he's already having a, a heck of a time digesting the bits of Ukraine that he has. The idea that he's going to go and, I don't know, attack Finland or something seems to me a little overblown, given that his army is, is uh, you know, Putin and what army, basically. But um, that said, I do think it would be if Putin does sort of win the war, if he gets to keep large chunks of Ukraine that he's not entitled to, that are not his under international law, that it's going to be massively destabilizing. We're already sort of seeing the tottering edifice of the post-World War II global order, right, with organizations like the UN, uh, headed by U.S. leadership. And, you know, that, that era may be coming to an end. 
Uh, this portion of our program coming to an end. You hear the music. Jonathan Hasid of ISU, Megan Goldberg, Goldberg of Cornell College. We'll be back in just a moment with more of this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. Back with more of this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Today with our analysts, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College, Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University. In just a moment, Jonathan, I want to ask you about um, the cases uh, that the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court has decided to take could have some enormous implications uh, on uh, that have to do with uh, President, uh, former President Trump's immunity. But first, uh, let me ask Megan about this uh, Texas Supreme Court ruling against Kate Cox. Uh, Kate Cox, a pregnant woman, uh, challenged the state's abortion restrictions. Uh, she filed a petition to have an abortion there. Uh, has left the state to get that procedure. The state's attorney general blocked an earlier court ruling allowing her to have the procedure. But on Monday, the Texas Supreme Court ruled that she did not meet the requirements to get an abortion. Um, And uh, the reason uh, we're pulling Texas into this, because we're Iowa, but listen to this. Texas law currently bans abortion as long as a fetal heartbeat is detected, with a few narrow exceptions. Uh, So, Megan, your thoughts on this decision, also given that Iowa has this so-called fetal heartbeat law passed in the last legislation but not in force, awaiting an Iowa Supreme Court decision. Yeah, so I think it's certainly worth watching sort of the legal uh, paths of all of these cases. I also think it's really interesting, and I'd sort of be curious to get in the minds of some of the lawmakers who supported the ban um, and and restrictions in Iowa, because I think it's really an example of um, how sort of personal and up close we're going to get with women's health uh, if we see these cases move forward, um, you know, and sort of thinking, especially, you know, if you're a woman and you're a voter mm-hmm. um, and you are someone who, who might have children, um, you know, thinking about the way in which this particular woman in Texas, like the amount we've learned about her pregnancy yeah. um, and the amount other people in her state and state officials, the, the sort of scrutiny um, in what is normally like a very private affair. Um, and and, and of, Megan, I, I forgot to mention, I really need to mention that she was told that her fetus was has a genetic condition that, that is almost always fatal. Important point there, right? Yes, right. And so this is exactly the kind of like really terrible optics uh, for Republicans who are supporting abortion bans. Um, and of course, it's um, it's terrible for the people who have to then go through this. It's terrible in every sort of situation um, when that's the diagnosis. But then to have it be this sort of public affair, um, you know, sort of adds an additional level of of trauma onto that. Um, But sort of, you know, uh, the idea and this is sort of came up, come up, comes up in debates on the legislative floor. But it's sort of like in the abstract, right, that we're going to force women to, um, you know, carry children for nine months that are almost certainly not going to live or that even um, in some cases, depending on the application of the law, that. Um, you know, your fetus could already have passed away and you have to continue carrying it. And all of these are great risks um, to the person carrying the child. Um, and this is, it's its sort of, I, I don't know if Republicans expected the political fallout um, of Dobbs and then the state restrictions to sort of be gone by 2024. 
um, so that it wouldn't be top of mind. But it really seems like it's still going to be front and center as we start to see cases being litigated in all of these different states that have added additional restrictions. Mm-hmm. Before we wind up the program talking about um, um, the GOP caucuses uh, here in Iowa in about a month's time, uh, Jonathan, let me turn to you with the uh, Supreme Court cases, uh, cases they've decided to take up with enormous political implications. Earlier this week, the special counsel Jack Smith asking the U.S. Supreme Court to take up and rule quickly on whether former President Trump can be prosecuted on charges he plotted to overturn the 2020 election uh, results. Here, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court being asked to resolve questions swirling around Trump's immunity claims so that this uh, lower court can stick to its March 4th trial date, or at least not go past that date significantly. So the question there, how soon will the U.S. Supreme Court uh, decide that? Then we had today the U.S. Supreme Court agreeing to decide on a question at the heart of the federal election interference case against former President Trump uh, and hundreds of prosecutions uh, arising from that assault on, on January 6, 2021. Here, can the government charge defendants in those cases under a federal law that makes it a crime to corruptly obstruct an official congressional proceeding. Um, uh, help us understand, Jonathan, as you see it, uh, these cases becoming coming before the U.S. Supreme Court and potential repercussions for our, our next year election. Yeah, both of them hugely consequential. Um, Jack Smith uh, very cannily is asking the court to step in right away and rule on whether or not Donald Trump has immunity, which, of course, he doesn't. I mean, you know, the rule of law is gone forever if the president of the United States has total immunity before and after office. I mean, then that, that means that Barack Obama could then go on a shooting spree and do his. I mean, it's ridiculous on its face. And so I accept that I, I expect that the Supreme Court uh, we'll quickly deal with that. It will probably won't be unanimous, but it should be. Um, as for the, the case about the, yeah, the other case could, so that case isn't going to help Trump. Um, uh, the other case could, uh, the, it's, as you say, it's for, um, uh, the, uh, question about whether or not January 6th, uh, insurrectionists can be put in prison for, uh, interference with official corrupt interference with official act. And, uh, the, what's interesting is that in this case, the government lost at trial with some defendants and has appealed. So this wasn't, unlike a lot of cases, this isn't the defendant who got hit with it. This is the government actually appealing and saying, uh, no, we think this is still good law. And, you know, I, um, I mean, I hope the Supreme Court upholds it. Uh, if not, it would seem to me that, uh, attempting to overthrow the government would then be, uh, at least quasi legal, which would be uh, seriously problematic for a democracy to, have such a such a role um so yeah you know one of these one of these cases is likely to hurt trump the other potentially but hopefully not will help him Mm -hmm. Uh, back to that first case a notable quote there from u.s district judge tanya chutkin writing on december 1st whatever immunities a sitting president may enjoy the u.s has only one chief executive at a time and that position does not confer a lifelong get out of jail free pass um, let's move on as our time is counting uh, down to the, the the caucus, about a month away until the Iowa caucuses. And we see a new poll here in the last few days, former President Trump expanding his lead in Iowa less than five weeks until the, the caucuses on January 15th. More than half of likely GOP caucus goers 
naming him as their first choice candidate. This is according to a Des Moines Register, NBC News, Mediacom, Iowa poll published on Monday. Um, Trump is the top pick for 51 percent of poll takers uh, who plan to participate in the the, the caucuses. That's an increase from 43 percent in October. That same poll, uh, only two other candidates reaching double digits. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis rising three percentage points to 19 percent. Uh, breaking a bit of head uh, uh, ahead of the former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who's at 16 percent, perhaps within the margin of error. I haven't looked at that. Um, but then Nikki Haley saying she and Trump will run a two-way race after Iowa. Megan, how do you see these latest poll numbers and Nikki Haley saying it'll just be Nikki Haley and Trump after Iowa? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think that one of the most interesting things about this poll is what it says about Iowa Republicans and how influential they are. Because, of course, we've seen this sort of influx of high-level endorsements for DeSantis. And at first, you know, I sort of said it's a wait-and-see game because there were some polls that came out maybe like a day or two after Reynolds had endorsed DeSantis. And I, you know, sort of thought that we would see the effects later, especially as we get the ads that roll out with Reynolds and DeSantis in them. Um, And that you, you could maybe see DeSantis benefit from that popularity. Um, but it also really stresses to me, I think, that in the the nomination process, often these endorsements, part of the power that comes with them is not necessarily that folks are taking cues um, from Reynolds uh, at sort of like the mass public level, but usually an endorsement from Reynolds would mean um, in Iowa or from the governor of Iowa would mean perhaps more money towards that candidate. And I don't think we've seen that from sort of the elites of the party Um, but also that other candidates might start to feel the pressure to drop out. And um, at this point, I really, I don't really see a path forward for Haley or DeSantis Mm. unless Trump drops out. Mm. And it hasn't really had like the the Republican Party uh, at the level of the party organization or party activists and leaders don't seem like they have been appropriately able to put pressure on candidates um, to leave the race, to, to concentrate support around either one Trump alternative or to even pressure Trump himself to not run. Right. And that the thought was that the smaller um, the group of candidates gets, uh, the more um, they, they could consolidate behind a, a candidate that is not named Trump. But the, you're saying, Megan, that hasn't proved so far to be the case. Right, exactly. And, and I don't know for sure, right, if sort of considering the counterfactual, if Nikki Haley had dropped out last week, would all of her support have gone to DeSantis, where then you would start to see like an actual sort of race happening, perhaps? Or if DeSantis had dropped out, would all of his support gone to Haley? That's possible. I think that is sort of looking back on 2016. There are some people who think that had we had Cruz or Rubio or one of those candidates to drop out, that we maybe would have earlier in the process that we might not have ended up with Trump. But that's that's speculation. Um, and so I don't know, you know, what that dynamic would be this year. All right. In the past month or so, several candidates have dropped out. Um, uh, Senator Tim Scott, uh, former President Mike Pence, he was early to drop out. And then more recently, the North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum really gaining no traction there. Jonathan, how do you see this race? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think we, we can point to evidence that if other candidates, at least some other candidates drop out, that Trump will not lose support, right? So you can look, you look at the cross tabs of some of the polls. You can see like second choices and third choices. And this Iowa uh, Red, you know, uh, the Des Moines Register poll conducted by the Selzer Company, which is a really great poll, um, 
shows that uh, Iowa caucus, Republican potential likely caucus goers, uh, seven, you know, it's basically three quarters of them are at least open to considering Trump. Um, and so really you've got maybe a quarter of the Iowa Republican Party who absolutely will not consider the man. And so even if they coalesced around one person, it, it just doesn't seem to me that it's going to be enough. If Ron DeSantis drops out, his support, second choice supporters are overwhelmingly Trump supporters. Um, Nikki Haley a bit less so. But in both cases, you know, it's uh, DeSantis dropping out maybe will benefit Trump more than Nikki Haley. And so, mm-hmm. you know, Trump is going to win. Now. If Trump is still alive and possibly if he's dead, uh, he will win the Iowa caucuses. <laughs> uh, and uh, perhaps even even from a prison cell, I think. Um, and so in that respect, it's, uh, you know, it's a question of number two. Yeah. I'd like to get your reaction to to a comment by Ron DeSantis. He was at a CNN town hall in Des Moines last night. Um, Here he says former President Trump, going back to our discussion about abortion as an issue here, he says former President Trump has an inconsistent record on abortion. Uh, I'm pro-life. I believe in creating a a culture of life. I've been able to follow that up in, in Florida by uh, enacting pro-life protections uh, to protect unborn that have a, have a heartbeat, a detectable heartbeat. Uh, and that's something that the legislature passed and we signed um, earlier this year. Uh, I think, though, one thing in this race that I think is important to point out is Donald Trump flip-flopping on the right to life. So if you look in, in January of 2020, when he was president, he stood in the March for Life and he gave a speech. And if you read that speech, he said that, All life is a gift from God. He compared the unborn child in the mother's womb to uh, being the image of God. He said it was important that we had uh, protections in law. And that's what he was saying in January of 2020. Now he has attacked states that have enacted protections uh, like heartbeat bills as being a terrible, terrible thing. Ron DeSantis at the Des Moines Town Hall, sponsored by CNN uh, last uh, night. Uh, Megan, chime in on, on this. Does Ron DeSantis have a point about what he says is flip-flopping by former President Trump on the issue of abortion? And I guess if he does have a point, will it matter? Well, I mean, I don't think it's a big secret that Trump is not... Um, even though he appealed to evangelical and sort of the religious right voter, that's not necessarily values that he himself personally holds. He's certainly not, you know, sort of thinking back at other presidents who have appealed to that group, like George Bush, uh, W. Bush, who sort of, he was that, you know, he was that voter. He, he was part of that community. Um, and, and Trump is not in any way. Um, and so I don't think it's shocking. And I think one thing that uh, Trump is very successful at is sort of reading the electoral wins and understanding um, what people are looking for. And I think he sees sort of the writing on the wall in some ways. If you look at public opinion when it comes to abortion laws, um, they don't sort of, they don't support the, the really, really uh, conservative abortion ban. And so I think he's just, he's looking at the general election right now and saying, and it's sort of the same thing you see Nikki Haley doing, saying that, especially, you know, thinking about if you're running for national office, advocating for a national abortion ban uh, at six weeks is not a winnable position. And that's why you see Nikki Haley staking out a different position. I think you see Trump, you know, possibly doing something like that as well. Um, and so I don't think DeSantis is wrong, but I think that um, DeSantis is not necessarily looking at what the most winnable position is when it comes to the general election leader. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we have about a minute left. Uh, Jonathan, uh, abortion or other issues. I don't know how much policy positions and issues matter in this primary race. Not at all. It's all it's entirely personality driven. And, and you know, Trump is, of course, uh, takes every position on every side of every issue. And so, yes, I mean, DeSantis is right that, of course, Donald Trump is flip flopping. He flip flops on everything. Um, uh, Megan is right. Right. He reads he reads the political winds. And um, in that sense, uh, he's quite good at it. And, he, you know, he changes his positions accordingly. So, yes, did Trump do that? Of course he did that. Um, the, what's interesting to me is that DeSantis has waited this long to start attacking Trump. I mean, it's a, you know, it's, he needs Trump supporters. He needs those voters. Um, and so by really going after Trump, it's, a, it's sort of the mark of desperation. Uh, before, he's been trying to walk this tightrope between, you know, saying he's a good Trump alternative because he's younger, he doesn't have the baggage, without going after Trump directly because, you know, he ultimately would need those supporters. Now I guess he's going after Trump more directly, which is, you know, that, that, that to me is more interesting than the substance of what he's saying, which is, which is totally true but irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is our, our last time having the two of you on in, in 2023. Our, uh, uh, we, we, to, to wind up here quickly, Megan, we all have our eyes on 2024. It's going to be quite a year, don't you think? Uh, yes. And uh, as a reminder, the caucuses come quick this year, right? We're on deck for January 15th. Um, and so I think things will be picking up slash also coming to a, a, a conclusion in Iowa um, sooner than we expected to, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, Megan, we look forward to your analysis in 2024. Jonathan, yours, of course, as well. Thank you for joining us this hour. Megan Goldberg of Cornell College, Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University. Jonathan, Megan, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Today's River to River produced by Caitlin Troutman with help from Danny Gear. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.